Father, thank you for uh, this time. We praise you for your word. We praise you, Lord, that um, you see fit to reveal yourself to us, that you, God, open yourself to us, that you invite us into relationship with you, into fellowship with you, God, and that, that we get to be here this morning to hear from your word, to, to know you more deeply, more truly. And we pray, God, that you, would, that you would do that among us, that you would open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive this word, that we would do what it says. And God, that in response, our hearts would worship you and that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. For you, God, are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As I was uh, preparing this week in study, I came across this quote by a theologian named Anthony Ugelnick, and, and this is what he says. He writes, We, meaning Christians in the West, confess to doctrines that are profoundly mysterious by their nature, that a man should be God, that one God should be at the same time three persons, that we of corruptible, corruptible flesh should also be temples of the living God. So we believe, but so we cannot comfortably think. For as thoughts, they are in essence mystery. Mystery is what many contemporary minds are hungry for. It's what they seek far afield in the non-Christian realms and such Eastern and Asiatic sources as the Bhagavad Gita and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. We Christians in the West have not shared what we possess. We have mystery in plenty, yet our discourse averts it, avoids it, as if in embarrassment. For mystery is what we have been taught through our education to extinguish. Now, when I read this in preparation to, to preach this week, I was, I was really cut to the heart. Because, in truth, I have been taught to extinguish mystery in my life. And maybe you, as a Christian, maybe you've been to church for a long time, maybe you've been taught to extinguish mystery, too. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're not a believer, you're not sure where you stand with, with this whole Jesus thing. And you do have a hunger for something like mystery, something like what he's talking about in that quote. But Christianity might not be the first place you look. That's true of many people today who are spiritual in some way, but, but don't look to Christianity for their spirituality. They go to places like self-help or to just nature or some kind of an Eastern mysticism. We all hunger for mystery, for transcendence at some level, because deep down we know that life is more than what we see. We all long for a transcendence that we don't find behind our desk or on our Twitter feed or around the table at home. Now, if this author is correct, then my fear is that our neighbors who aren't a part of our church won't find the transcendence that they crave here among us either. Because if I'm honest with myself, I find it much more comfortable to think about the incarnation than to embrace the mystery of it. 
Sometimes I think that the, the modern church is a lot like Scrooge McDuck. There's no Scrooge McDuck. He has like this vast, massive vault where he can like actually swim in his gold. I think we are like Scrooge McDuck in that we, we, we sit on top of this massive pile of golden mystery. Rich beyond our wildest dreams and spiritual heritage. But we fail to enjoy it and can't be bothered to spare one penny of mystery and wonder for our neighbors who long for it. It isn't because we're, we're hard-hearted or unkind. We don't share the mysteries of our faith because we ourselves aren't comfortable with the idea of mystery at all. We don't like the idea of a faith that we can't comprehensively explain. And I wonder if deep down the reason for that is that we're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of encountering a father that we can't fully understand. That we're we're afraid of, of seeing a God who is utterly beyond our capacity to comprehend. I wonder if we fear coming face to face with the majestic holiness of our creator. 2,000 years ago, in the narrative that Song read for us this morning from the book of Luke, Mary didn't have the choice to avoid it. She was brought face to face, confronted by the mystery, and it completely changed the course of her life forever. The holy and divine came upon her in a way that no other person in all of human history has ever experienced. And so as we look into this story together this morning, I want to reflect with you on the mystery of Advent. That's the title of today's sermon, The Mystery of Advent. And the first thing we see in the narrative is that this mystery is announced. The angel comes to announce this mystery the angel comes six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. We looked at that story last week. You can read about that in the, the first 25 verses of Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth um, is, is told by Gabriel that she will bear a son even in her old age. And the angel goes to her cousin, Mary, who's a young woman living in the, the small town of Nazareth. Now the text tells us twice in verse 27 that Mary is a virgin. Now, this is a way of, of highlighting. In the ancient world, they didn't have like, lots of neat fonts like we do on our word processors. Um, so if you wanted to you know, emphasize something, highlight it, put it in bold fonts, you just repeated yourself a lot. And so he tells us she's a virgin, she's a virgin, she's a virgin. Luke wants us to recognize the human side of this mystery, just how amazing this miracle really is. He's pointing out the fact that Mary could not have a child naturally because she hadn't slept with a man before. And if you think about it, pregnancy and childbirth are are mysterious things in their own way. I've never been more amazed or in awe than, than when I had the opportunity to watch my wife give birth to our children. I mean, the female body is an incredible thing in itself, and every last one of us who walk this earth... We're born of a woman. Whether we have children or not, we've all participated in that natural mystery, so to speak. But what Luke is doing in this passage is, is highlighting to us that, that there's nothing natural about 
this particular mystery. This, this mystery has the divine written all over it. The angel says to Mary in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And really, everything else the angel says for the rest of the passage is encapsulated just in that short sentence. Mary, he, he says, is the favored one. And the root of the Greek word behind that word that he uses there is the word grace. She's the one who God has shown grace to. The one on whom the light of the grace of God has shone in a special way. This is actually the verse where the famous uh, Hail Mary prayer um, that you may have heard comes from. You know, the, the line goes, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And, and that full of grace often gets interpreted as Mary was somehow full of grace in, a, in, a, in her own right. But, but I think what, what this shows, what the, what the text shows here, is that the reason she's full of grace is because God has poured out his grace upon her in a special way. And she's full of grace because the Lord is with her. This echoes the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that word Emmanuel means God with us. The angel is saying to the Virgin Mary, God is with you. You are the chosen home of God himself. And through you, this prophecy will be fulfilled. God is with you. And because he's with you now, God is going to be with all of us. Mary, in response, doesn't understand. It tells us that, that she was greatly troubled at the same. She knows well. She knows well what kind of God exists and that, and that when God visits, when God comes, he can either come in judgment or blessing. God's existence and presence was not an abstract idea to be debated in an ivory tower for someone like Mary. God's existence is a living, pulsating fact behind the existence of everything in this universe. The Bible says in Acts 17, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Mary knows that God is there, but she also knows that she is a sinner just like the rest of us. She knows that if God comes in judgment, she cannot stand. And so the angel says again that she has found favor, that she's found grace with God. And as a church, we've named ourselves after the grace of God because we believe his grace changes everything. God's grace is his undeserved love. And that love comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that means that the, that the only way God's grace can change everything for all of us is because God's grace changed everything first for Mary. If God hadn't visited her with his grace, then none of us would be here. If God hadn't visited Mary with his grace, there'd be no such thing as a Christian. Think about that. In Protestant circles, we often forget the significance of Mary because we don't want to go too far. 
but we should ponder and reflect and, and give her the, the credit she's due, not in herself, but in the way that God used her in history. The angel goes on in verse 31. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus sums up everything that he was about. The name Jesus means Yahweh, the the secret name of God. Yahweh is salvation. Which means that whenever you say the name Jesus, you're saying that he is the Savior. This child, the angel says, will be the Savior. He goes on, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This Jesus will be a king, but not just a king. Jesus will be the king. He will be king, not just now, not just for this generation. He will be king forever. Between his name, Yahweh is salvation, and his job description, eternal king, the angel is making it clear that this child is different. This won't be an ordinary birth. And it won't be an ordinary baby. The angel's announcement says that God himself will come down. God will come in bodily form to dwell in the body of this young woman and be born of her own flesh and blood. Now, about a thousand years before Mary received this announcement from the angel, The temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon in Israel's history. He, Solomon, was the son of King David. And David had promised to establish an eternal throne for David's family, and it was supposed to begin with Solomon. Solomon was supposed to be the fulfillment of this promise that God would establish David's throne forever. But if you know the story, you know that Solomon, in his reign, was deeply flawed. He fell short of the amazing promises that God gave to his people, Israel. And yet, God used Solomon to establish a dwelling place for God on the earth in the temple that he built in Jerusalem. And when that temple was built, King Solomon dedicated it and and prayed a prayer over the temple as it opened that, that first day. And part of that prayer comes down to us in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon prayed this prayer over the temple right after its construction. He said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Now, the Jerusalem temple was a a wonder of the ancient world. It was was covered in gold. 
It was grand and glorious. It was a fitting place for the God of the universe to meet with his people. But Solomon was saying as he prayed that prayer at the opening of the temple that this house, this big, grand, glorious house isn't enough to really contain God. That in reality, nothing on this earth, nothing in this universe could actually contain the God who made it all. No, nothing on earth can contain God except the Virgin Mary. Colossians 1, verse 19, says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, in his person. And Jesus Christ dwelt in bodily form for nine months in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The golden temple in Jerusalem wasn't big enough for God. But the mystery of the incarnation is that the God of the universe humbled himself. That the God whom the whole universe couldn't contain made himself small, minuscule, microscopic, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, who was pleased to dwell as a zygote in the womb of an illiterate teenage girl in the backwoods village of Nazareth. Now, there are theological formulas and doctrinal implications to this reality. But my hope this morning is for us to simply hear the wonder of this mystery, to receive it in our hearts by faith. That we could reflect on what it means, that we could imagine what Mary must have felt in that moment. That that we would stand as a church in awe and humility as we look at the, the humility of the God who made us who willingly made himself small so that he could pour out his amazing grace on all of us. Can you receive this as the wonderful mystery it is? Are you content to not fully understand, but to worship nonetheless? Are you willing to put off our Western desire to comprehend and thereby control in order to let yourself be caught up in this tiniest and most glorious, wondrous, world-altering miracle? Can we receive the mystery like Mary did? That's the second point this morning. The mystery received. Mary hears the announcement And simply asks, how can this be since I am a virgin? She understands how the world usually works. Unless we think that that Mary and people of her time were less sophisticated than we are, we should remember this question in a moment. Mary wasn't gullible. She wasn't stupid. She wanted to understand. And the angel explains in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, there are many ancient myths of gods having intercourse with and impregnating human women. But it's clear that that's not what's happening here. The angel says the Spirit will come upon her. That God's power will overshadow her. There's nothing lewd or or sexual about this. It is physical, but it's draped in mystery. We don't understand the the mechanics of, of how Mary will become pregnant, but we know that it's the Spirit's work according to God's will. That's why the most ancient Christian confession, the Apostles' Creed, says that Christ was simply conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That creed doesn't elaborate on how that worked. doesn't explain it. It simply states the mystery and invites us to receive it by faith. That's what the angel does for Mary. He announces this life-altering mystery and invites her to receive it by faith. And there's something really wonderful in the angel's words that I want to point out for us this morning. The angel says that God's power will overshadow Mary by the Holy Spirit. Now that word overshadow that he uses is the same word that's used in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis Chapter 1, verse 2. Many of us know the the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Say the creation of all things, at the first creation, God's Spirit hovered, overshadowed the formless creation into which God was about to speak. And when God spoke his word into creation, he spoke light and life and beauty and wonder all into being, all in an instance. God made all things by his powerful word and everything he made was very good. But if you know the biblical story, you know the creation didn't stay that way. If you know the story, you know that the first humans, Adam and Eve, that God made in his image to be in relationship with him, that they sinned against God and fell. And that as a result of their sin, a curse entered creation, and that nothing's ever lived up to its potential since. In fact, the the first woman in the garden, Eve, was tempted by Satan and chose sin and death. Which means that death first entered the world through the first woman. And that's part of what makes the angel's announcement so wonderful. Death entered the world through the first woman, but God isn't the kind of God to leave death and sin to reign over his people. He isn't the kind of God who simply meets out punishment at the first sign of disobedience. God is a God of steadfast love, of compassion, of faithfulness. God is a God of grace. And just as death entered the first creation, the old creation, through a woman, so life 
and salvation. So the Son of God himself would start a new creation through a woman and redeem the whole world through her child. For all the the shame that, that Eve must have felt the day that she was forced to leave the Garden of Eden, Mary now has been honored a thousand times over as worshipers across the centuries have remembered her name and recognized that God started the new creation in her womb. If there's no Mary, there's no Jesus. No Jesus, no salvation for all humanity. No Jesus, no new creation through which we can be redeemed. Which means that no amount of sin or shame can keep us from God. Verse 37, the angel says, nothing will be impossible with God. And the incredible extent of divine power is not seen in destruction, judgment, or or awe-inspiring feats of strength. No, the the extent of God's power is, is seen in His humility. In his taking on flesh. In his humbling himself to the mystery of the virgin birth. God redeemed all creation through the seed of the illiterate teenage peasant girl. Mary would give birth to the divine. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary knows that God defines her and she willingly receives her new identity as the mother of God with confident humility. She says in verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. (laughs) That verse warrants its own sermon all by itself. Don't worry, I won't do that to you. Mary lets the grace of God define her in this moment. And she calls herself God's servant. The, the word servant in Greek is the same as the word slave. This is an elevated position she's receiving. Serving God himself, being close to the throne of God, to be, to be used by God to, to execute his plan of redemption for all humankind it's a matchless privilege but she acknowledges that at the same time she's not in charge of her destiny she's a servant she receives this mystery and her new identity with faith with confident humility so the question for us this morning is how do we receive the mystery Are we willing to submit to the wonderful grace of God? This Advent season, I want to encourage all of us to enter into the mystery of the gospel with confidence in the grace of God and humility at our need for it. And I want to encourage us to let the wonderful mystery of the Incarnation of God coming to be with us in Christ. I want us to let the incarnation bring us to our knees in worship. Let's pray.
Father, as we stand before the mystery of the incarnation and the virgin birth, our words are not sufficient for these things. And Lord, I'm mindful of the fact that there comes a point at which we just need to be quiet and worship. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with worship. That we wouldn't shy away from what the the scriptures teach on this subject. That we certainly wouldn't be embarrassed by it. But God, that we would receive these things with confidence because it says so in your word. Because you've revealed these things to us in Christ. And with great humility. Because, God, we could never have earned or deserved such a magnificent display of your humility. Of you, the great and awesome God who upholds all things by the word of your power. Making yourself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant. Becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus, your humiliation on this earth began just with the act of you being born. And as we reflect on the circumstances around your birth, Lord, we admit that we don't fully comprehend it. But God, we pray, I pray, that we would receive it by faith and stand back in awe and wonder and worship you for the good, glorious, gracious God that you are. We pray all of these things in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.